This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, April 17, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll talk with Mia Levis-Porter. She's a mother, gun violence survivor, activist, community organizer, and candidate for the 52nd District for the California State Assembly. But first, let me ask you a question. Should corporations have the same rights as people? Should money spent in elections equal free speech and drown out the political voices of people who don't have lots of money? Well, the Supreme Court apparently thinks so, but the overwhelming majority of people don't. Join Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend. Move to Amend is a coalition organizing to pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Find out how to become part of this movement to create a real democracy, not just for we the people, but all the people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So we're talking with Mia Levis-Porter, who's running for the 52nd District of the California State Assembly. If you're familiar with the Los Angeles area, California's 52nd State Assembly District encompasses Glendale, Eagle Rock, Highland Park, parts of Silver Lake, Lincoln Heights, and East Los Angeles. The demographic can be described as a working-class, majority-minority progressive district with diverse communities. Mia grew up the daughter of Filipino immigrants that taught her the value of community. Her father was a doctor and her mother was a nurse. They would often visit elderly patients at their homes and, at times, waive payments for those who couldn't afford office visits. They set a good example for Mia by caring for others as well as the overall community responsibility. As a gun violence survivor, Mia joined the group Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety, and she actively helps organize community activities centered around gun violence awareness. She's committed to help fund mental health services, gun violence prevention programs, and legislation that gets dangerous weapons off our streets. And we'll focus mainly on the topic of gun violence today. So Mia, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Dan, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Good. Well, we could talk about a lot of things today. I noticed uh, looking at your campaign website, you have a lot of issues there uh, related to not only gun violence prevention, but education, global warming, criminal justice reform, health care, transportation, and so on. I mean, it seems like you really care about your community and you want to make it better. Now, a lot of people would argue that running for political office is an exercise in self-torture, <laughs> but <laughs> but you have a passion that drives you into this course of action. So can you give us a brief background of your experiences and how they've shaped your passions and, and why on earth would you want to run for office? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, excellent question. So I am a mom of two boys, 14 and 10, um, and I fell into activism 
very organically. I actually have a master's in interior architecture. Uh, I had earned it eight months pregnant with my youngest and uh, my oldest was three years old at the time. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done up until running for office. Um, but so when I was ready to go back to work, I found that the jobs that I was being offered wouldn't even uh, cover childcare. And so I, our family decided that I would stay home, that we would try to survive on one income. And then once my eldest was ready for school, I, we were looking around at, at, at different public schools and the programs and realized that music, arts, PE programs had to be funded. Um, and there were nonprofit parent organizations that were raising $20,000 for these programs. And so I joined the parents' organization. Um, I became a full-time volunteer with the school. And so in addition to raising money for these programs, mm -hmm. uh, the parents' organization would cover teacher appreciation, sometimes TAs. So that's how I organically became an activist, wanting more from my kids mm -hmm. um, than, than I had. And actually, I was realizing that they weren't even getting what I had growing up. And so uh, along with uh, fundraising and volunteering at our school, I stood with our teachers during the 2019 LAUSD teacher strike. Um, and then after Parkland, I joined Moms Demand Action, which as you had mentioned is where I discovered that I was a survivor of gun violence. My brother Junior died by gun suicide almost 30 years ago, but I never realized that I had a right to say that I was a survivor, mm -hmm. even despite the fact of how much it, it changed the course of my life and it, how it impacted each family member uh, in different ways. And so the power of joining Moms Demand Action in every town and them teaching me how to use my voice as, as a survivor, sharing my story nationwide, uh, that's where I realized I have a voice, it's my responsibility if I'm not happy with how the government is working to use that voice and to demand more. And that's how I fell into running for office. Well, that's good. And it's it's kind of the, uh, you know, as alluded as I alluded to in, in the introduction regarding your parents, I mean, they, they sort of put that sense of community responsibility in you as well. So this is, you know, a tribute to you know, the, the training that you're and the uh, learning experiences that you got from your parents as well. Thank you. I agree. Yeah, I believe, you know, <clears throat> it's our responsibility to look out for each other. Um, and along with that, we're at this place right now where California being the fifth largest economy, uh, greatest economy in the world, and yet people are still struggling to pay rent, still mm -hmm. struggling uh, with medical costs, still struggling to put food on their table. You shouldn't have to choose between paying rent and paying for uh, medicine, life-saving medicine or, or medical treatments. And so that is where, since we're collectively struggling, we should be able to rely on our government to step in, to intervene for us and, and give us what we need to level the playing field so that we can strive to thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I like that, strive to thrive. Now let's talk about the environment in which you, in which you live. This is the uh, 52nd State Assembly District, which as I mentioned before, includes a lot of communities and these, and it's a fairly dense 
area in terms of population. And can you give us an idea of the nature of of the gun violence in your area? I mean, and not just in terms of raw statistics, but the emotional and, and economic impact on the community overall. Thank you for your question. Yes, we are a black and brown community, lower income. And I think that what happens is we're struggling from environmental racism. Um, in People in our community, many do not feel safe with our law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, something we say with Moms Demand Action is that police violence is gun violence. Mm -hmm. And so when our law enforcement is not um, serving the needs of all the people, that not all people equally feel safe with our with our LEOs, uh, then no one is safe. And so this is something that we absolutely have to address. And that's why I do believe in ending qualified immunity for law enforcement, as well as reallocating money uh, for our police towards community services. Um, you know, our, our law enforcement, first of all, is already overburdened. Writing traffic tickets, you know, you can run through a light and there'll be a machine, a, a flash that will catch you. We don't need, we can alleviate that from their plate. Um, mental health first responders, I do not believe our law enforcement is equipped to handle anyone who is struggling with a psychotic episode or, or possibly suicidal. And that's where if we could have more funds going towards mental health first responders, um, that would not only alleviate pressure on our law enforcement, but also send those who are trained to better handle the situations. Um, and so, yeah, you know, on top of all of that, COVID shed a light on how invaluable our mental health is. And sadly, there were many people were struggling from stress, from isolation, from um, fear of, of losing or, or losing a loved one, depression. And so our mental health, um, you know, if you pair mental health uh, with a gun, it's going to be a tragedy. Yeah. And so so that's where I believe we can take actions to to mitigate mm -hmm. gun violence in our district, in our state, with common sense legislation and with education to be proper gun owners. Yeah. In fact, that was actually the next question I was thinking about asking. You know, what what uh, what are your some of your ideas of overcoming uh, gun violence? You mentioned uh, mental health responders. Boy, oh boy, that's that's a that's a big one on my list too. Because many of these situations that police are facing. Uh, they're not dealing with all the. They're not, they're not always dealing with people that um, that have it all together, you know. And especially with, like you say, with COVID, that that pushes the envelope. And I know uh, years ago, just kind of going back into my own past history, my mom used to work at a uh, facility for people that were mentally challenged, both uh, both intellectually and and also with uh, mental health issues. And this was like back in the 1980s, and the government started to defund these facilities. And I remember my mom saying, you know, I was talking to her about it one day, and I said, you know, what's going to happen when you guys, you know, you start losing money and you have to start letting staff go? And she just shrugged her shoulders and she said, you know, it's all going to be the police from this point forward. <sighs> and uh, boy, oh boy, was she right. I mean, this is like, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years ago, she said this. And, um, 
she was spot on. And um, yeah, so I can see you know this being an issue. And you also mentioned education as well. Um, that is, how does education factor into uh, overcoming gun violence? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so as far as, as um, my approach, um, well, actually just for my whole campaign, I believe that we should be leading with compassion and finding, um, investing in preventative rather than reactionary um, solutions. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> when it comes to um, mental wellness, gosh, yeah. Um, I don't think that as, as much as they may be well-intended, I don't believe that law enforcement should be the line of defense interacting right. with those who are struggling um, from uh, whatever myriad of, of mental illnesses. Yeah. Um, it does take compassion and training. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the important thing is, is, you know, otherwise it just is going to escalate. Well, let's, let's asking about education as well. I mean, how does, um, <clears throat> how do you see education fitting into the overall uh, formula for reducing gun violence? Uh, twofold. So first of all, um, there's, educating parents and educating adults as gun owners, there is actually in California, it is the law that you have to keep your guns uh, secured separate from ammunition. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, as far as education, that is something that many people don't realize. Uh, fortunately, LAUSD a few years ago uh, passed it was accepted that they would send out letters to um, parents in their school district. And it's just informing parents of the law so that they know, you know, if, if, a, if there is a gun at home, a child will find it. Yeah. And if it's kept securely uh, stored separate from ammunition, so many lives could be saved just from that alone. And then separately, actually investing in education, which is why um, public school equity is so important to me. Um, I have seen my own father was a product of going from being the poorest family in the poorest town through his his dad ha uh, fought in the war for America in mm -hmm. World War II. He was able to go to college and how much his education changed his life. Um, you know, and it, he became because he was able to go to college, he was able to support his own uh, brothers and sisters and my mom's family to come to America. By my dad going to college, he changed so many lives. And so for me, I've always been acutely aware of how important education is. And I think that that's why leveling the playing field and making children in lower income communities see that they deserve just as much as children in other well-to-do well communities. Sure. Um, it makes them realize the potential that they have rather than if you if you if you subject them to feeling like they're always without if you subject them to feeling like they don't deserve as much mm -hmm. I think that that will backfire into a rebellion as a member of society sure. to where they think that their options are well I'm never going to have that so you know perhaps I should find other ways to get it as in you know, unlawful ways. Right. Um, but when you invest in people, in children especially, to believe that they 
can strive for, that the sky is the limit for them. Um, I think that that's, it changes how they approach life in general. So it's getting a little philosophical. No, I'm totally with you on that because I, you know, I always felt that the more people know, the smarter they are, the more uh, integrated they become with society. And, you know, when, when you're dealing with people that, 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 are uh, that don't have education and they're taking the lower paying jobs because of that uh they have less to lose and uh, i always uh in my life my philosophy is don't ever fight someone that has nothing to lose <laughs> because you know if you have if you have an education you have a good life you have um people that love you around you you have a lot to lose and you're now more invested in your community and you care more for your community and you want to make sure that the community does not have violent elements running around. So, um, and that's yeah. exactly you're exactly right because you want to give people hope so that they can strive for more, so that they can be their best selves. Yeah. Um, and so that's why you know education is the it can be the great equalizer. And for me, I truly believe so many ills that are happening in the world right now. If we could invest in how our children are are raising, uh, are growing up, um, you know, and giving them hope and belief that they can do and be anything, um, you know, it would change the face, and that they, they are responsible yeah. for each other. Yeah. It would change the face of our society. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, let's uh, let's switch over to talking about logistics for just a moment here. Um, how is it happening? How are guns getting into the hands of violent criminals from your perspective? And, and what do you think could be done to stop it? Great question. So California, I'm glad to, to live in California where we are have the strongest gun laws in the nation. Um, but I always get asked, yeah, but there are still deaths here. Yeah, there's still gun violence here. See, mm-hmm. those work laws don't work. I completely disagree. I think it's the opposite. Um, first of all, within our states, we are only as safe as the strongest gun laws of our neighbors. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when there is a gun show in Nevada, uh, there have been mass shootings afterwards, including the Gilroy uh, garlic festival a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so, because there are, is not a federal law, um, you know, uh, in jurisdiction, uh, or, you know, um, sorry. Yeah. An overlaying jurisdiction of consistent federal gun laws that, um, yeah, that keep the guns yes. out of other communities. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, it's easy for people to take uh, guns from Nevada and bring them across state lines. Same thing happens from with Chicago. Um, I believe that you know, because we have stronger gun laws, um, we actually it would be it would would have been worse. Gun, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at um, other states with more lax gun laws. Um, gun violence increases in their states. So if you look at red states that are that that um, are very lax on gun laws, Mm -hmm. they tend to have a higher percentage of gun violence. So I think that we have um, limited how much gun violence is in California, despite, um, you know, lax gun laws of our neighbors. Yeah. 
Well, that, that's a good, that dovetails into like a whole new uh, discussion about, you know, whether or not we should federalize gun regulations. Um, that would, that's kind of a heavy lift. And, and you talked about the red states. Well, um, and we talked before the podcast here, I told you that I was living in California for almost 30 years, and now I'm back to my roots in Missouri here. And uh, so I've been really follow, I've been following Missouri fairly closely in terms of gun laws. And <laughs> you'd be surprised that, to learn that we have this thing called the SAPA Act. I don't know how you pronounce that, SAPA, but that stands uh-huh. for the Second Amendment Preservation Act. And I don't know if you saw this was on 60 Minutes. I believe it was last November. They did a story on this law here in Missouri, which and the law basically prohibits state agencies from helping the federal government enforce any law or rule or regulation, which Missouri considers to be an infringement on the right to bear arms. And what makes it worse is that each violation can carry up to a $50,000 penalty. And, (sighs) And the funny thing is, you know, the police actually hate this law. They hate it. And, and you could talk to many police chiefs across the state, everywhere from urban to rural areas alike, as well as the as well as the prosecuting attorneys, and they publicly and energetically, energetically uh, speak out against this law. And and it's you're right. The, the the murder rate in Missouri is twice the national average. And so it's it's almost as if you know, like the first four words of the Second Amendment have been removed. You know, the first four words being a well-regulated militia. Exactly, exactly. And also, the guns uh, when the Constitution was was written would kill one person at a time, not mm-hmm. fifty. Right. And so the laws need to evolve. And it, for me, it is it's not about taking away the right to own a gun. But it is about encouraging responsible gun ownership. There is no reason that weapons of war need to belong on the streets of, of any town in America. And if you need a, a weapon of war for hunting, then you must not be a good hunter. You know, and it's right. not even it's going to decimate the animal. And and exactly what you said, that we are limited if we were able to have federal uh, gun laws pass like universal background checks on all gun sales. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are so many instances where having worked with survivors of gun violence, hearing stories over and over again of how within a matter of hours, a loved one was able to access a gun because of a lax, um, uh, background check, uh, you know, law, they were able to access and and again pairing that with a low moment of depression um it, it sadly yeah. ended in in tragedy yeah in, in losing a loved one to gun violence yeah. and and that's where like these are ways that we can curb um especially especially with how how stressed out and how um frantic and frenetic people are feeling after COVID. Yeah. Um, now more than ever, we need to set some laws in place to help them keep themselves safe Yeah. and each other. Well, there, there's this natural human emotion called rage, and right. I don't think anybody is immune to it. You, you know, it, it, it does, my son calls it going ape, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and and you you may pick up something and throw it, or if you're in a bar or something like that, maybe you throw a punch at somebody, 
and you know that's the end of it but you know it you're right if you have easy access to firearms it's just human nature to try to to you know express your rage in the most violent way possible and if that includes a gun um it's a permanent sort of solution right you you now you've you've permanently damaged someone else's life exactly let me ask you about this because this is something kind of interesting a lot of people talk about this even here in the midwest um we always hear about governor gavin newsom because he's always up to something but there's this thing called uh, <laughs> there's this thing called the uh, uh well people have been urging him to fight like republicans in quotes there and oh, so he, he, about, yeah. <laughs> he, you know what's coming, right? He proposed a bill that was modeled after Texas's uh, state Senate Bill 8, which empowers bounty hunters to privately sue people that assist in, uh, in an abortion after a six-week period. And um, so Newsom's law, Gavin Newsom's law, would allow basically California bounty hunters to sue manufacturers or distributors or sellers of assault rifles or ghost gun kits uh, mm-hmm. throughout the state of California, and the bounty hunters are entitled to collect, just like Texas, uh, at least $10,000 plus attorney fees per violation. And I thought this was yeah, kind of an interesting idea, you know, playing the same game Republicans play. But there was this article written recently by Ellie Mistel. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's the uh, justice correspondent for The Nation, um, The Nation magazine, that is. And he's on and off, you know, TV talk shows a lot, too. And last December... He penned an article that he argued that the U.S. Supreme Court probably would not allow this California law to be enacted. And, but at the same time, they kind of look the other way when they're allowing the uh, Texas law regarding abortion to be enacted. And uh, in Ms. Dahl's, uh theory is that the reason why this is happening is because we have a Supreme Court that has been politicized. And what the Supreme Court wants, the Supreme Court gets despite the howls of hypocrisy. And it's it's kind of a cynical attitude, but um, you know, it basically boils down to all branches of government have been sufficiently uh, politicized. Yeah. And so that yeah. really makes it a, a big lift to try to get uh, not only all the citizens of the United States, but all the branches of government to really act on the types of uh, policies that are being uh, promoted by Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, how do you? What do you have to say about that? I mean, that, that's uh, first of all, we can go back to the California law of Gavin Newsom. I, I think that's an interesting idea, but still, it it, it may not get that far. How? Do, what do you? What are your thoughts on that? Thank you for sharing the. Uh, yeah, I knew about I knew about uh, Newsom's uh, proposal, um, and I thought it was interesting flipping the switch. And um, I actually am supportive of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I thought it was good strategy that to show Texas, if you're going to do that regarding uh, Roe v. Wade, then we will do this to our advantage uh, regarding gun safety legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what gave me hope was actually a few months ago when um, I think it was Smith and Wesson was sued by families of Sandy Hook mm-hmm. um, because gun manufacturers should be held responsible for irresponsible um, advertising. Uh, I don't know if you are aware that there is some company making junior-sized uh, 
AR4, AR-15s and they paint them to make them kid-friendly. Um, that's just irresponsible, much the same way the cigarette companies uh, were sued for irresponsible advertisements. Mm-hmm. And so that does give me hope that there is precedent legally mm-hmm. to hold uh, gun companies um, responsible. I, I mean, it's 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 related. It's different, but related yeah. to holding, yeah. um, right. uh, you know, having empowering bounty hunters. Right. Uh, yeah. So. I do think, yeah, the Supreme Court, I, I would support expanding it yeah. um, to, to truly have a fair, yeah. equal um, viewpoint. I think it has um, been stacked against um, progressive policies. And so, yeah, I, I yeah. No. I don't know if that's the best answer on a side note. I don't know how much more to speak out on that. Yeah, it's it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult topic. It really dovetails into, you know, they talk about expanding the Supreme Court and there was an excellent article written several years ago. My goodness, I can't remember the guy's name anymore, but he wrote for one of the Boston newspapers. He talked about not only expanding the Supreme Court, but also uh, cycling the judges through the Supreme Court so that each one serves a you know 10 to 15 year term or whatever it is. And oh. uh, so that each president then has an opportunity to uh, you know put more put his or her own choices onto the Supreme Court to keep that Supreme Court, uh, lively, because if you think about it, when when the when the United States first when the Constitution was first written in the 1780s, um, people just didn't live that long, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so now you get people on the Supreme Court. They they get on the court when they're in their late 40s or early 50s or something. You know, they're going to be hanging around for like 30 or 40 years. And um, that's a that's very interesting. That that I I I wouldn't necessarily have them rotate every four years, but maybe three terms, four terms. Yeah. But um, but that's very interesting because I think that even with my incumbent in my race, uh, who ran unopposed last November, in I mean in twenty twenty, mm-hmm. as well as um, I, I don't think she's had a real challenger in, since she won her seat in 2017. Mm-hmm. I think it makes people very lax and they don't have to work for their, their seat. Yeah. And they and so they they can be open to being bought. They can have you know Oh absolutely. So yeah. I, yeah. I like the idea of rotating because I think rotating every four years would be, um, it would be like a ping pong game. However, if they were there long-term enough to understand the gravity of the seat, the gravity, uh, you know, of their position Mm -hmm. historically, it might make them take their position more seriously and understand that if they don't, uh, if they don't um, support Mm-hmm. you know, um, certain legislation yeah. beneficial to all, mm-hmm. then it will come back and haunt them the next session or the next cycle. Well, I think according to this article, anyways, it was, I think what, what he was talking about was, let's say you have a panel of say 15 Supreme court justices, you know, you have to expand it at that point, but then, uh, every year one of them would be due. So, so let's say mm-hmm. a person comes onto the Supreme court 
they are there for 15 years, but after 15 years, their term has expired and someone else would be rotated in behind them. So every year you have a rotation of Supreme oh, Court justices. Okay. So yeah, so every president then has, you know, every year can nominate someone for the Supreme Court. And, um, and it's, just a, it's, it's a formula, right? So that's really, yeah, that's a very interesting idea. And also just the idea of having a fresh set of eyes, yeah. um, a constant fresh set of eyes and a new voice. Um, that's very interesting. I would love to hear, uh, get that article if you ever sure. find the link. I'll dig it up yeah. somewhere. It's actually written about three or four years ago. And, and gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. He's written a lot of great articles, but it was for the Boston Globe, I believe. So I'll find it for you and, and uh, shoot it over to you in an email. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's talk about culture for a moment, because, you know, it's it, one of the, my frustrations is that is that it becomes a cultural thing. Uh, gun worship becomes almost as much, if not more, of a, a of a, wor a center of worshiping than, than religious figures themselves. And as, as an example, there's this famous picture of U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert standing with her family in a Christmas photo. They're standing in front of the Christmas tree, and each of her kids has, you know, um, they're brandishing a gun. I've seen <laughs> it. Yeah. You've seen that one, yeah. right? And yeah. It. So it, it, to me, that, that tells me that this is becoming a mixture of religion and guns and it almost makes like a taliban like nation when you get when you get right down to it so i mean how do you unwire that mindset how do you, what 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 can you do or what can moms demand action what can they do to try to unwire that mindset you know the nra started as a gun safety organization mm -hmm. and they had an eddie the eagle program trying to educate children how to be responsible about guns. And actually it was not proven to be effective. You know, if a kid could still get their hands on a gun, then they would, you know. Yeah, find a way to use it. That so. would ha yeah, something, exactly. Fatal might happen, an accident. Um, and so I think that really for young children, you know, we have to be, Parents need to be responsible for children under 18 accessing a weapon and what they do with it. That's why what happened with, uh, uh, oh gosh, the guy in Wisconsin mm -hmm. whose name escapes me. Oh, oh yeah, uh, you're talking about Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse? Thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you. That's why, for example, Kyle Rittenhouse in, in Wisconsin, um, it was upsetting that his mom not only gave him a gun, but drove him across the state lines yeah. um, and that she should have been held responsible. Yeah. I think that that the idea of that uh, would make parents take gun safety in their home more more seriously if they knew that they would be held accountable for what their children do with with the guns. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you never know with children whether it's a bad day or they are goofing off or whatever reason, what happens with a gun? Um, there have been too many stories of children getting shot, children shooting uh, their parents because they accessed a gun in someone's purse in a car, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that's already a trauma that the child is gonna have to live with. And so let's take that out of the equation 
Again, responsible gun ownership and then holding the parents accountable. You know, you, you talk about gun gun safety, and I have a little story of my own. My I, and I, I remember talking to you a couple of days ago in our in our uh, first session with each other, and he, my son he wanted to have guns. He was, he was growing up. He wanted to he wanted to shoot guns, and so um, I went out and we we bought some of these um, some of these uh, airsoft guns that shoot these hard plastic BBs. Mm-hmm. And I took the opportunity then to set up a shooting range for him and teach him how to how to handle the gun in the shooting range, you know. And the three the three uh, rules I always drilled into him were: it's always loaded; it can go off at any time, and and whatever you point at is going to get shot, basically. Yes. Yeah. And you know, we went through these drills over and over again. And one day he comes out of the house and he says, "I just shot myself." I says, "What happened?" And and he said, "Well." <laughs> The gun, you know, I was taking it out of my bedroom and um, it just went off and it hit the ceiling and bounced off the wall and then hit me right in the leg. And I just thought to myself, how can this happen? You know, how you know, we go over this over and over again. Don't ever keep the thing loaded. Don't ever, you know, you, you keep your ammunition separate. And still this kind of thing happens. So it kind of scares me. You know, we, we eventually graduated to going up BB guns and pellet guns and stuff like that. But it just really showed me how children you you can you can drill as much as you can into their heads but at some point there's this element of chaos that takes over and you can tell them you can tell them you know that don't ever work with a loaded gun and you know adults that know better still have enough accidents the way it is you know and it it just gets a hundred times worse with children exactly so it's 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 reiterating that it is a weapon designed to kill that is its purpose mm-hmm. is to injure or kill and so i think that you know they're this glamorizing it for kids or you know i mean it's it it astounds me that uh, i think that there was like a 12 year old who who went on recorded uh who was recorded as going to a gun show mm-hmm. and was able to buy a gun like that's just irresponsible wow. Um, of the adults, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly, gosh, it breaks my heart that we aren't giving our kids boundaries and that they are going to live with the consequences of our decisions. um, Because ultimately at the end of the line, our electeds uh, are bought by the NRA or who are bought by the NRA. They're the ones who are going to be the loudest um, opposing every single gun safety law. It is ridiculous. The laws that should be no brainers um, and and uh, it's it's opposed by legislate legislators who are funded by the NRA. And that's why I personally run a clean money campaign, because I don't want my voice compromised by any special interests. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the way you have to do it. It it sort of puts you at a disadvantage uh, money-wise because there is a lot of money out there if you're willing to take it and 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 then abdicate for the people who are giving you the money. But <clears throat> on the other hand, uh, it does compromise you and um, you can no longer make untainted decisions as a legislature. So let me ask you a question. Where can people go to learn more about your campaign and about the issues that you care about and possibly get involved and help contribute? Thank you. Yes, they can go to our website, miaforassembly.com, and it's M-I-A-F-O-R assembly.com. And we uh, recently launched or uh, published our 
platform as well. So I am, I have six pillars in our platform on our website that you can check out. I'm fighting for a safe and livable California where we all can thrive and a California that's going to work for everyone. Um, I do believe policy that it is policy choices when you have people who are unhoused or who are food insecure or cannot afford uh, medical treatments or medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and that we need our government to intervene. And so that's what I hope I can accomplish in Sacramento in the way, in, um, uh, when I get when I win my election. Yeah. And uh, how about the gun rights? I mean, the not gun rights, but uh, um, gun violence prevention advocacy sites like Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety. Yes. Um, I have been a volunteer for several years with Moms Demand Action. Uh, to get involved, you can text READY, R-E-A-D-Y, to 64433. And what I love about Moms Demand Action in Every Town is is they really taught me how to use my voice as a survivor. Uh, they have um, a survivor fellow training program. And that's where I learned how to speak with legislators and use my voice um, and inspire other survivors to step forward to use their voices. Moms Demand in every town also started a program called Demand a Seat, which trains people how to run for office as well, which is the next logical step after, for me it was, of, of being an activist, hmm. using my voice for change. And it was an incredible program. I was glad to be uh, part of the first uh, cohort. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So they actually put you through, through some sort of a training program for uh, running for office then, huh? Yes, yeah. And, and they talk about various things from um, campaigning to how to set up your team to messaging so and, and sharing your story. Um, it was a great program. And, and yeah, I'm a very proud graduate. Very good. And so, yes, that is MomsDemandAction.org. It's all one word, MomsDemandAction.org. So um, we've been talking with Mia Levis-Porter, a mother, gun violence survivor, activist, community organizer, and candidate for the 52nd District for the California State Assembly. Mia, good luck with your campaign. I hope you do well in the election, and I'm confident you'll do a great job in the State Assembly. Thank you so much, Dan. It was lovely talking with you. I'm so grateful. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.